I want you to pause and think just for a moment about what would it be like if you walked through the doors and there was no doubt in your mind that any person sitting here would sacrifice for you. They would sacrifice everything that they have for you. They'd be there for a cup of coffee if you needed. Maybe you got laid off, they'd be there with food. Um, if you're sick, they'd be there to pray with you. What would, that, what would you feel like? What would that create for you if you came through those doors and every Sunday that's what you knew? Anytime during the week, you could open the directory up and call anybody and they would sacrifice for you. Would that make you feel safe and secure? Would it help you relax? Would it produce a sense of joy? Would it make you nervous? Would it frighten you? Would it make you want to invite your friends who don't know Christ? What would be the impact of that? That, in fact, this place is a sanctuary. We are a sanctuary. That's what we do. We're in a series entitled Standing Together, The Case for Joy. And we've been arguing, we'll continue to argue through the book of Philippians, that only by being together in healthy community will, can we possibly experience the level of joy that we're created for. It only comes by having a flourishing, healthy community. Last week, we were in Philippians 1, and we began to define what citizenship is all about, and we learned several things. One is we learned that at the heart of true citizenship is the importance of standing together or working together. Um, If we're divided, we can't experience true citizenship. In fact, isn't that one of the concerns in our nation Uh, Every survey I've seen says that Americans are pretty anxious. One of the ways they're anxious is lots of reasons, but one of them is that we're becoming more and more divided and fractured as a country, and we're losing that commonality. We're losing that sense of what we're about. At the heart of true citizenship is the idea of standing together, working together. Citizenship involves unity in beliefs as well as behaviors. We have to have something core that we all agree to. And that should produce in some way that we live out our beliefs. We live together in a certain way. And again, as we see our country just moving in different directions and people moving with different agendas and different lifestyles, it's unnerving to us because we, we find it almost impossible today to find a common, a common agreement even. I met somebody recently, we've been spending time together, and uh, he was talking about his wife and she had expressed, uh, she has a pretty extreme view of politics, um, but expressed a desire to talk to people that have the opposite view just to have the conversation. And she said how difficult and challenging it is to have that conversation because people want to argue and fight and yell. Something, something not right about that. So I always like taking the opposite viewpoints. I said, hey, I'd love to have the conversation. Tell me what side you're on, and I'll take the opposite one, and we'll have a great time. I do that in the classroom all the time. Well, we also learn that beliefs include our perspective on the gospel of Christ, that one of the ways that we are united as a church is based on the gospel, the good news. Let me remind you what it is. The gospel is the good news that we serve the one true living God who cares about you. He cares about all of this creation. He made it, animals, plants, everything. And he's moving in all of our lives and our friends' lives in such a way that we would worship him alone as God. We would turn to him because that's where we'll find true security. But it also involves uh, 
understanding the significance of this right here, community. That it's just imperative that we have a flourishing community, a healthy community. The key areas of behavior that come out of those beliefs are standing together, being like-minded, and enduring suffering together as a church. And they both are vital to the way we grow as a church. We're going to talk more about that. So today we're going to look in Philippians 2, and we're going to explore the concept of sacrificing together as one of the key ingredients to kingdom living in a broken world. Sacrificing for each other is so critical. Last week we said suffering is critical. Today we're going to look at the other side of that, sacrificing for each other. So that raises several questions. How do we stand together? What does that actually mean, to stand together? To be like-minded, to be unified. Unified in what area? I mean, do we have to be unified with the Broncos? We are, aren't we? <laughs> Somebody came up to me this morning and said, thanks for wearing green to support the Packers. <laughs> Off with you. Out of here. <laughs> You're not welcome. <laughs> so it's fun to laugh at it, but, but it really raises the question, where are we going to be unified at what level? We're clearly not unified in politics. I can tell you that. I have coffee with you. I know we're... Well, let's just say we're not unified in politics. <laughs> we represent our nation, don't we? And so what actually do we have to be unified in? What does that mean? What role does sacrifice play in our church and in the lives of each other? How, how critical is sacrifice for the gospel message to be understood by the people that don't understand it? Which may be some of you, by the way, in here. How critical is it? Uh, how does joy result from sacrifice? How in the world does that happen? So these are kind of all questions we're going to start dancing around in this passage today. So let's jump into Philippians and see the connection between these concerns and what good ministry looks like. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in Philippians 2. We're just basically going to read the chapter together and talk through the, the key points that start to stand out, surface with us. So we're going to begin in Philippians 2, chapter 1, and it says, Therefore, oh, now we've got to stop. As soon as we see the word therefore, we have to go backwards. Okay? Therefore, based on what I just said, and what what did he just say? We finished last week with verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1, where we learned about um, those who oppose our faith from outside the church. There's several key principles to help us with that. Okay? Because you may remember he said in verse 28, Do not be frightened by those who oppose you. So what does that look like, those who oppose us from outside? And we are going to get opposition as much as we don't like it. We will. Principle number one is to stand firm together for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm. That was his very first principle. Stand firm. Stick together. All right? Find unity, in other words. Principle number two is suffer together for the sake of the gospel. Remember I said last week that suffering is the one language that the world actually understands. When we suffer, they get that. They get it. know what it's like to be laid off. They know what it's like to lose people to cancer. They know, what, they know all kinds of things like that. And so it's a language that we actually share with them. So suffer together for the sake of the gospel. Now we're going to look at the other side. What does that mean when we do suffer internally? How do we, how do we process that? So our unity becomes our highest priority so that we will be able to endure the suffering caused by those that oppose us. If we're not unified, we won't be able to withstand that 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 voice that comes at us from culture. If we are divided, we have already lost our testimony to Christ and our ability to live together well. We are. If we are divided, we begin to lose our voice to a world that understands division. 
they don't like it. That's why all the surveys show how uncomfortable Americans are. We don't like that kind of fracture, division, and disunity. And if we are dis- disunified right here, if we're divided, if we're fractured, we begin to lose our voice because they look at us and say, well, you're just like us. There's no difference to us. So very first thing he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement, okay, pause. If you have any encouragement, therefore, based on what I just said about standing firm and suffering well together, if you have any encouragement, the if clauses in the Bible are very fascinating they're just like what we have in America. We could use if in any number of ways. We can use the word if to communicate a certainty. It's going to happen. If the sun comes up tomorrow, let's go fishing. Okay, it's going to happen. We can use if to communicate probability, possibility. We can even use an if to communicate the opposite. It's going to happen. Well, if you could read Greek, you would see that that's very easy to discern which of these ifs are being used. Paul is now spelling out the motivation for cultivating unity with the word if, and he's using it in the sense of a reality or a certainty. This is not a possibility or even a probability. He's putting forth a theological certainty of following Christ that you have all experienced. So we could translate it since you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. But if we did that, then we'd lose kind of the mystery of, hmm, do we have that? So he's raising the question with the if clause of, is this really true? You tell me. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you've been encouraged by our church, raise your hands. All right, that's a certainty then. So we already know it's true, right? If there's any comfort from his love, if you've experienced some level of comfort from people here, raise your hand. Excellent. If there's any common sharing in the Spirit, so if you, have, if you have come and you have had someone come alongside of you in some way and share something with you and you've experienced that, let me see. It could be just friendship. It could be somebody met a need. Um, if any tenderness and compassion. Is there any tenderness and compassion? Let me see. All right. So these are theological certainties. By the way, don't rely on me for these, some of these things. If you fall, if you come up here to see me and you trip and fall and hurt yourself, I'm going to start laughing. (laughs) Sorry. I have no idea why I'm wired that way. I hope it's eternal. (laughs) I will show mercy, but it'll come in the midst of laughter as you hurt yourself. (laughs) So if these things were true and you just confirmed to me that they were, which is what Paul is arguing, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. He moves immediately into the whole, uh, uh, the, the real core of his exhortation. And he says, if these things are true. So if these, if clauses are true, the natural result is to start to be united. If these things are true, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So he, that like-mindedness idea repeats it twice at the beginning at the end. Having one mind and being like-minded. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing. Do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. So this is where the idea of joy is introduced because as we begin to experience these things, unity begins to result and we begin to experience joy. 
The world doesn't understand that. That joy comes from sacrificially giving to someone else. Sacrificing in ways that wouldn't normally do that. That brings joy. That generates joy. And true joy comes from being like-minded. So if you come and you say, um, I, I, just got, I just got fired from my job or laid off, and I don't have enough money to buy food for my family. And you come to any one of us, and we have the ability to solve that, to give you food, and we choose not to, does unity result? No. It's just the opposite. We begin to generate frustration and hurt. We begin to feel devalued. But if you come to any one of us and say, I just lost my job and I can't feed my family, and we say, oh, I've got money saved. Let me help you. What happens? Joy. Right? Safety, security. Someone's taking care of me. Unity comes together. If I say, no, I'm not going to help you, division begins to occur. And if I say, yes, I am going to help you, unity begins to occur. Like-mindedness at the very core starts with this idea of sacrifice where we put each other first. If we help each other and sacrifice unity, you can't avoid it. And if we don't sacrifice, you can never achieve unity. That's the whole message of Philippians. That's where it starts. So but what, in what ways are we like-minded? In doctrine? Sure. In some respects, we do have a basic core belief statement, don't we, that we all agree on. But that's not really where his emphasis is. His emphasis is on love and the spirit with which we live with each other in relationship. So he's talking about unity and like-mindedness in our very lives. So at one end of the continuum, we are unified in Christ. That's at one end. But at the other end of the continuum, he says, be diligent to, be, to guard that unity in Ephesians 4, brought about by the Spirit. So we are unified, but yet we have to be unified. So it's a statement of condition and a statement of behavior. In other words, we, can, we could be unified because we're Christians and hate each other, and that violates the very thing God's after, joy, and therefore the mission out in the world of bringing his love. So we are to take that unity which Christ brought about on the cross and bring it into our very lives. And so he's focusing on, when he's talking about being one-minded, he's talking about love, the way we love each other, and the spirit with which we do this, with which we live with each other. We don't do it out of grudging. Not, we're not begrudging. No, we're generous. We're compassionate. We're caring. Our unity in Paul's argument here is clearly based on how we treat each other, putting each other before ourselves. So this raises a third principle then in Philippians. Um, Sacrificing is important. Be like-minded in our sacrificing by putting each other first. That's so important for the gospel message. This principle is amplified all throughout the passage. We just read Philippians 2, 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Then he turns around to verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, live it out. He doesn't say work for your salvation, work it out. Work it out in our individual lives with each other. This becomes important. In verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. You've heard me say that, and you're going to see now that for him, this is a central point. You either have integrity or you don't. And we could tell at the very basic level by the words that you say. We'll come back to that. In verse 18, he says, be glad and rejoice with him. So that should be a character quality of our church. We're glad and we're rejoicing. That's part of it. Okay, then starting in verse 5, he talks about being sacrificial and he introduces his first example, Christ. 
And this is one of the core passages about Christ in the New Testament. We're just going to read it. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that Christ had, that Jesus had. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. See, so Christ is sitting in the throne room of heaven with the Father at his right hand. Enjoying all the privileges, the wonderful place. This is the best place there ever has been and ever will be. And he did not consider both his position and his place as something to be used to his own advantage. And all your different translations use different words in this verse because this is a notoriously difficult verse to translate. But the basic idea is he had it all and he could have kept it. But it wasn't important for him to, retain, to use that for his own advantage. He cared more about us. And so he stepped down from that wonderful place. Or as Hebrews said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. On our behalf, he entered into our messy, broken world where life at best is a challenge. He didn't have to do that. But he did. Not only that, it emphasizes while he is in the very nature of God, he did not consider that equality to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, a slave, being made in human likeness. He became a slave, a servant to us. All right, husbands, just a little word here. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? By becoming a slave. A servant. That's how. So here's what a here's what a good marital argument should look like. <laughs> Husband says, uh, "I think we should go to California for our vacation." The wife says, "No, I think we should go to Florida." And the husband says, "All right, we'll do it your way." And the wife says, "No, I th- I think that uh, I think we probably should do it your way." And he goes, "I put my foot down as the head of this household. We're doing it your way." <laughs> Instead of fighting for what we want. We ought to be fighting for what the other person wants. That's what it means to be a slave. Here are the words of what Christ did for the church right here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Become a servant. Become a slave. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ gives us the supreme example of how to be like-minded, and that is by sacrificing for each other, just as he did, by putting each other first. When we make each other a priority by sacrificing, sacrificing, unity cannot be avoided. It's a natural result. So we live in a country where sacrifice is being replaced by entitlement. And we're losing that unity. It's disappearing. Let's don't do that here. Let's show the world what a model could be like. Unity, when we sacrifice, unity is a natural result. That's what he's arguing. Now, 
in Christ, if, if he is the example, then we should be able to take this song and recite it for each group of the people in our church. For instance, we could recite it for the men, for the husbands, for the fathers, for uh, staff, for elders, wives, women. We could take each group and we could rewrite this psalm. It's one of the things we do in seminaries. We have students either write a psalm or rewrite a psalm so that they learn to express the same commitment that the psalm expresses. And you'll notice if you have your Bibles open that the, that the font type changes here. That shows you that most scholars and translators think that this was an early hymn. It was well known. So Paul just grabbed the words out of a hymn that their churches were singing to demonstrate, as an example, his argument about sacrifice and service. So what I've taken the liberty of doing this morning is rewriting this psalm, modifying it a little bit, taking out the references to deity and applying it to one group in our church, the men. So I want the men to stand up. Just stand up. We could do this with any group, but I chose the men. We're going to say this song, this hymn together. Okay? Let's say it together. We men, being in the image of God, do not consider our role as men to be used for our own advantage. Rather, we consider ourselves nothing but servants. And being men, we humble ourselves by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on behalf of those who depend on us. Therefore, we believe God will exalt us at the appropriate time with the result that others will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. You may be seated. Women, you could do the same. We could have the mothers do it. We could have the fathers. We could have the elders stand up. We could have the staff stand up and recite this because Christ becomes a supreme example of how we live and how we view ourselves that our lives are here for your benefit. That's what he's saying here. Okay, then Paul goes on in verse 12 and talks about being faithful. So he's moving from being sacrificial to being faithful. Verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. See, there's that outward focus, bringing out the love of Christ to a broken, a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like them among them. You will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Remember, he's in prison. So even if my life is now being poured out, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So he now encourages the believers in Philippi and therefore us to live out their faith in real and tangible ways. Our faith needs to be real. Why? God is at work in each of us to fulfill his good purpose. That's how he starts, right? For it is God, verse 13, who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What is his good purpose? To reach the nations. It's called the mission of God. Everything in his Bible is focused on reaching the nations. That's his good purpose. So the reason we live our faith out is to reach the world for Christ. That was our very first principle in how to apply Scripture. Does our interpretation and application and the practices we develop lead to bringing the love of God for this broken world out to this broken world? And you see it again right here. 
Um, Philippians 1.27, and remember through 30, reminded us that God, it's God's grace for us to suffer for his name. And the reason why it's his grace is because it gives us the chance to love and minister to each other, and the world can see it. And they want to be part of that. They want to be not part of the suffering, but they know they're going to suffer. They want to be belong to people that are going to care for them because we care for each other. So living out our faith begins with our attitudes about each other. That's the center from which everything else happens. At the very core, the attitudes that you have cause your behaviors to move out. That's why he says, do all things without grumbling or arguing. Not most things. All things. When we, uh, when we bring elders onto the elder, the elder board, one of the things we tell them is, when you become an elder, it's really true for all of you, we just don't really enforce it, but we do with elders. When you become an elder, you, you lose your right to freedom of speech. That's an American right, not a Christian right. The truth is, you don't have the right to freedom of speech. You have the responsibility to use your mouth appropriately. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word, not most, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only a word that brings encouragement to those who are listening. That's what your responsibility is when you become a Christian. And so you either have integrity or you don't. It's like you have, if you can't have integrity at work but not at church, you can't have integrity at work but not in your home. You're either a person of integrity or you're double-minded. You're a hypocrite. And so Paul zeroes in on the very basic level of behavior to determine, for you to determine, are you a person of integrity? Do you grumble and complain? you got integrity issues. It's that simple. That's why he whittles it down to this very simple thing. Because if I genuinely care about you, I'm not going to grumble about you. So this is a check for you. You grumble and complain? Do business with the Lord. Do we grumble and complain or do we love each other? And then he goes on to say, then you will shine among them. If you get your mouth under control, you'll shine among them like stars in the sky. To whom are we shining? All of our friends and neighbors. You grumble and complain. You have nothing to say to a world that understands that. If you're an encourager in everything that you say, the world can't help but take notice. They can't help but see it. This is the evidence of our love for God's world. Then you will shine like them, among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word. So the way we behave convinces and demonstrates our belief in this right here. So using Paul's example right here, this is the core. If you really are convinced this is God's word, then you will begin to move in curtailing the grumbling and complaining. That's what he's arguing. So one example he uses, that results in our joy, our joy and gladness. That results in it. And then he moves from there and he starts to give us two examples. I'm going to read these in verse 19, but I want you to notice as I read them, both these examples demonstrate concern for others and sacrifice for others. Both are principles that are true in the Christian life. They demonstrate our concern for each other and our uh, sacrifice. The first one is Timothy, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. 
I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out, now listen, this is a checkpoint for you, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What's your primary motivation? To look out for yourself or to look out for Christ? What's the interest of Christ? He cares about this broken world. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has, uh, but as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So Timothy demonstrates what it means to have the interests of Jesus in each other's lives. And he also demonstrates that our very lives and how we live out our faith provides proof to those around us. It demonstrates our commitment to the truth of the Christian message. What you say and how you live life provides the rest of us all the evidence that we need to see if it's true. Then we have Epaphroditus, verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. So he's with Paul, and they heard that he got sick. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. That's how sick he was. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Nobody likes to lose a friend, do they? Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. All right. He starts off by calling him a co-worker. Epaphroditus demonstrates what it means to be a co-worker. A co-worker is a technical term used in scripture of a leader. It's one who works alongside of another for the sake of the gospel. So this term co-worker, he says he is a co-worker. So what does Paul say about co-workers? I'm going to turn back to 1 Corinthians 16 and read you a passage. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people, those who put the work of the ministry first, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. So he says, submit to those people and everyone who joins in the work. That's that technical term, co-workers, co-laborers, to submit to the co-laborers. So here it is. Epaphroditus is held up as a co-laborer, a co-worker, and he says in verse 20, welcome in the Lord and honor him. He's following his own advice. Now, when we get to chapter 4, you're going to see something very interesting because he calls Euodia and Syntyche co-workers. So the four leaders of the church in Philippi that we know of are uh, Epaphroditus. And then in Acts, we learned about Lydia. And then Euodia and Syntyche. So we have three women listed, and we're told to submit to them. This should factor into your discussion about the role of women, which we've been having as a church. We are to show mutual submission to men and women both. There's clear. Well, Epaphroditus does actually more than that. He demonstrates what it means to be concerned about each other. 
to put others first, even in spite of his own personal suffering, in the midst of his laying on the deathbed, he's concerned about what these people think. Are they going to be anxious for me or concerned? Then he demonstrates how the faithful suffering of one of our own should lead to great joy and honoring them as they triumph in spite of their suffering. When people suffer well in our church, we should hold them up and say, look at what a good job they have done. Their faith is fantastic. I want to be like them. And all we're trying to do in our culture is figure out how to eliminate suffering. Oh, I'm all in favor of eliminating suffering. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a masochist. I don't want to suffer. But if God has in store in my path to suffer, I want to suffer in such a way that it brings you joy and courage and unity because I know that I'm playing a vital role in your life. I said last week that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit moves amongst us. That's what he does. He moves amongst us. And I I can't dictate who's going to lose their job and all of that, but the Holy Spirit does. And so what that does is it's constantly shifting those who have extra grace to give with those who need extra grace. And that's the very heart of Christianity is moving into each other's lives and sacrificing. So one day it could be one of you. Next week it could be me. I hope and pray in the Lord that I don't come next week and Nancy's with the Lord. But you know what? It happened to me one Sunday. My wife went to be with the Lord and I went to church and she wasn't with me anymore. I needed extra grace. I did. So that's why suffering is so important to bring us together in unity because suffering presents the need. Sacrifice presents the answer. We sacrifice. Does that make sense? When you put chapters one and two together, this is what a healthy community looks like. And in the middle of it, if we start grumbling and complaining and looking out for our own interests, our testimony begins to dissipate. It's gone. We're no different in the world. It's in the fact that we don't grumble and complain and we put the interests of Christ first. In other words, our love for each other. That's when our testimony shines. Who would not want to be a part of that? I can't think of anybody. All right, so what do we learn from all this? First of all, our foundation is always focused on the mission of God. That's what Paul's doing. We shine in the world. Remember our first principle. Does our interpretation and practice result in bringing the love of Christ out to a broken world? Number two, we learn how, uh, that how we live our lives together is important. It's very important. That was principle number four in how we apply and the practices we develop. Does our interpretation result in developing a flourishing community right here? If it doesn't, we got the wrong interpretation. It's that simple. Third thing is, are we committed to living out our faith even when we have to pay a personal cost? Are you willing to honor the Lord even when it doesn't go your way? In fact, are you willing to acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign and therefore you're going to put his interests first? And what is his interest? To use your life for the benefit of someone else. And that may be suffering. may not be. It could be something very different, but it could be suffering. Are we willing to be the new creation for this tired, weary, broken creation? Are we willing to do that? Father, once again, we lift up to you our gratitude. We lift up to you our gratitude for several reasons. One is you have shown us grace every step of the way in our own sinfulness 
In our own sinfulness, you have given us honor. You've given us dignity. You have moved in our lives in such a way, Lord, not to punish us, not to hurt us, but to bring life to us. Father, we are grateful because you sent your son for us. Lord, help us to be the type of congregation to continue to be this, not to start, because we're already doing it to some degree, but to get better at it, where we learn what it means to have your interest in not only our own lives, but in the way we love each other and to sacrifice for each other. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we believe in him. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Thank you once again for your generosity. Uh, that's just, it's just proof. The staff relaxes because we know you take care of us, and you take care of our church. Thanks for being generous. I said that sacrifice leads to unity. Um, If any one of you comes to me and I sacrifice for you, we just naturally move closer together, don't we? It's just as natural as breathing. And if I deflect you or turn you away, then that's what happens. Division occurs, hurt, things like that. If you come toward me and I show you love and compassion, then our relationship grows closer. That helps us understand the mystery of the unity that Christ brought about, which we are to diligently preserve and protect because Christ sacrifices. As we get ready to move toward communion, this is a celebration, a remembrance of his sacrifice. As he moved toward each of us and sacrificed, he draws us closer to himself. That's what unity in Christ is all about. If he had not done that, if he had not moved toward us, we would never have experienced that love and we would move away. Not the opposite. But he didn't. He moved toward us, which allows us to move toward him. So I want to give you just a few seconds just to express quietly your gratitude for Christ uh, for sacrificing for you.
In order for us to celebrate communion together, I need some of you to come up and get ready to serve the bread and the cup. And uh, I need several of you up here and others of you that are willing to pray with people. We do like to pray during communion. Sometimes they express lift up needs. Sometimes they lift up joys and praise, things like that. Um, For those of you that are visitors, we close our time each week by just celebrating together. It's almost a, a recalibration each week to remember what the Lord has done. This is how we close our time to send you out into the week to remember. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. On the night he was betrayed, there you go. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did. And uh, that's the act of sacrifice where he calls us to himself. Then after supper, when the supper was over, he took the cup and said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the act of shedding his blood, which brought about forgiveness and atonement and introduced a whole new way of relating. What we've been talking about uh, every week up here is we look different than the world, not because we're better than the world, but because we want the world to see what we do so that they're attracted and they want to be part of it. So if you're here and you don't know what you think about Christ, just watch us, and you'll know what we think about Christ. So when you come forward for communion, somebody will say, this is the body of Christ given for you. It's both a blessing and a remembrance to help you remember. Somebody will say, this is the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. It's a blessing for each of you. That's our confession as a church. If you would like to join us in our confession, then we invite you to come forward and uh, receive communion. Father, thank you for sending your son, for not forgetting us. Jesus, thank you for being willing, in spite of all the advantages that you had, thank you for being willing to step down as a servant, as a slave, into our messy, broken world and lives. Lord, we don't know what it's like not to have the messiness, but you did. Thanks for stepping into our world and uh, coming to serve us and sacrifice for us so that we can learn what it means to love you and love others. And we are grateful. That's why we pray these things in your name. Amen. Come forward and celebrate communion.
Now, in closing, you expect me, and I'm tempted to say go out and sacrifice, but that's really the wrong approach. Uh, What I would like to encourage you to do is pause often this week and reflect on what Jesus did. Um, I have found in life that the more you reflect on what he has done for you, the more deeply gracious you feel, the more grateful, the more gratitude you experience. That's what leads to sacrifice, is you become more and more aware of what someone has done for you. And you want to repeat it. So this week, don't focus on sacrifice. Focus on Christ. And look at what he's done for you. And appreciate it. Uh, That's my prayer for you this week. And in the meantime, I hope you experience the peace of Christ. Have a great week. Go in peace.